Tonight we are gathered to remember the cross of Jesus Christ. Oh, there we go. It's better. Uh, I have heard it said before that you cannot fully know Jesus Christ without knowing his cross, without understanding the meaning and the magnitude of that Sunday school answer that Christ died for our sins. But when you do know Christ crucified, it changes everything. To understand the meaning and the power of the fact that Christ died for us is to experience the power of God, to receive the healing that he offers, and most importantly, to receive forgiveness and righteousness. And that's why we're here tonight. Not to celebrate, as we will on Sunday, the great resurrection of Christ, but to remember with sorrow the death of Christ. So pray with me real fast, and then we're going to dive into Isaiah 53. Holy Father, open up your word to us by the power of your spirit and exalt your son this night. Give us hearts and imaginations to behold the death of your son Jesus that we might be transformed and saved. Amen. Well, imagine, if you will with me, you are Peter. Big-hearted Peter. A little bit like me. He likes to talk a lot, probably. Very loud. And it's an exciting time. You have been chosen by Jesus to be one of his inner circle guys. You're witnessing things that nobody has witnessed in hundreds of years in the history of Israel. Healings, miracles, teaching with authority. It's an exciting time to be alive. But more than that, Peter has just uh, proclaimed, the, he's the first one to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah. And up until this point, uh, they had been walking around with a guy they thought was pretty cool. They thought he was a good teacher, but they didn't realize he was the Messiah. And so one day Jesus says to them, hey, who do, what, who do people say that I am? And the disciples are like, uh, maybe a prophet, maybe even Elijah, maybe a, a homie of John the Baptist. But then Jesus makes it very personal. He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter had the privilege to be the first human in history to say, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the long-awaited one. And now you're walking on the road, you're going to Jerusalem, you're on your way to worship, you're going up the mountain to the place where uh, you, will, you will meet God, where you, where you will uh, join with the rest of the people of God in worship. And Jesus says something very unexpected. That's what he says. This is from Mark chapter 8. And he, that is Jesus, he began to teach them that the Son of Man, referring to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. So imagine your big-hearted Peter high on life and that is what Jesus says he came to do. Talk about a downer. Verse 32, and he said these things plainly. In other words, Jesus wasn't mincing words. He wasn't talking in a parable. He wasn't talking allegorically. These things were going to happen 
in Jerusalem where they were going to. And big-hearted Peter pulls the Messiah, the sent one from God aside, and rebukes him. We don't really know exactly what uh, Peter said. Doesn't give us the exact words except for that he rebuked Jesus. He rebuked him. And I, I've conjectured, maybe well, this is what Peter said. Maybe he said something like this. Jesus, you, can, you cannot go around saying that. You just can't. Okay? We're in Israel. All these people know that the Messiah is going to be a great son of David. A true son of David. And he's going to be characterized by being, by being strong. By being a deliverer. By being a conqueror. Not some suffering reject. You can't be saying that, Jesus. Or maybe he said this. Maybe he said, Jesus, if that's going to happen to you, if the scribes are going to reject you, if the authorities in Jerusalem are going to condemn you and crucify you, that means that you're going to have to be found guilty of something. And we know you, Lord. You're not guilty of anything. You're perfect. You are righteous. So maybe that's what Peter said. I don't know. I don't know. But it makes sense. But when Peter was faced with Christ's prediction about his suffering, he saw only foolishness and weakness. He did not see salvation. He did not see the power or the wisdom of God. He saw foolishness and he saw weakness. There was just no way in big-hearted Peter's mind that that could be God's plan for humanity. There's just no way. But God's plan was different, as it so often is in our lives and in Scripture. And so we have to ask the question, why would Jesus say that? Why did he say that? And why did that actually go on to happen, right? Why did Jesus get arrested without reason? Why was he accused falsely before a phony court? Why was he abandoned by his friends and his followers on Good Friday? Why was he beaten and whipped and tortured and mocked and finally nailed to a cross and left there to die naked with nobody around him. Why? What happened? Well, for those of us who grew up in Sunday school, we know why. I'm going to take a little bit of a roundabout way to get to the answer, though. You see, after the, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's the whole rest of the New Testament. And the whole rest of the New Testament is essentially an explanation of why Christ had to die. So everything after, after, after John is explaining why Christ died or applying it. But as the writers of the New Testament were explaining those things, they looked to the Old Testament, to the images and to the stories and to the, um, the theology of the Old Testament to explain Jesus' death. And we're going to look at one of the passages that shows up everywhere in the New Testament. It's Isaiah 53. Now, Isaiah 53 is actually a lot longer than just, as, than just verses 1 through 6, um, but I don't have all night. You could honestly do probably four or five sermons just from the meaning of, of this song, because that's what it is. It's like a psalm. It's a song that is explaining this mysterious servant of the Lord, so the book of Isaiah is often called the, um, the gospel of the Old Testament. It announces so much good news. It explains how God is going to work 
in history um, from the time that it was written to the end of time. And in the last half of the book of Isaiah, this unique character comes onto the stage. He's only called the servant of the Lord. He's never given a name. He's not given many titles. And he comes in a series of songs. There's four of them. Okay? And each song describes this mysterious servant. And in the fourth of those, the one we're going to look at tonight, it might as well have been written by somebody that had witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus. It describes in detail not just what happened, the story of Good Friday, but the meaning of Good Friday. Verses 1 through 6 are uh, spoken or sung from the perspective of Israel. Okay? So verses 1 all the way to the rest of the song, you have to imagine in your imagination that someone from the people of God is remembering their encounter with this mysterious servant. So that's the image I want, to, I want you to have in your mind, that it's these people reflecting on this encounter that they had with this servant. So who was this servant? Uh, in the previous chapter, it says a few things, a few vague characteristics of the servant. First of all, he was sent from God. In chapter 52, verse 13, God himself is speaking. He says, my servant is going to act wisely and he shall be high and lifted up. In other words, he's my servant. He belongs to me and I'm the one that's sending him to succeed in his mission. Okay? So this is somebody who is sent from God, but immediately it gets surprising. The next verse he says, my servant was shocking in appearance. He says, many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He was so disgusting to look at, he didn't even look like a human being. And lastly, not only was he, uh, was he sent from God, not only was he shocking in appearance, but if you look at chapter uh, 53, verse 2, which is our actual passage, the servant of the Lord was no, was no stranger to sorrow. He was no stranger to pain. He's not, that's not what you expect from somebody sent from God. So with that in mind, we get into chapter 53, and the people of Israel encounter that servant. He's sent from God, he looks horrible, and he's no stranger to sorrow. And this is their response. In a word, animosity. The people of God encounter this servant, and within their hearts, it's not even just that they're ignoring this servant, it's that there's a deep animosity in their hearts towards him. Verses 3 and 4, it said that he was despised. Their the, the despising in their hearts was a focused stream towards this servant. It's visceral. It's bloody. They hated this guy. And because they hated him, they rejected him. The word for rejected here is a very strong, I mean, it's like, it's like kicking somebody out of a bar, you know? It's a rejection. It's not just a shooing away. It's a rejection. They despised him. They rejected him, and lastly, in verse 3, they were very ashamed of him. It doesn't give a reason why. 
They were just ashamed of him. Look at verse 3, the second half. As one from whom men hide their faces. Hide their faces. They wouldn't even look at him. And they give three reasons. Why this animosity? Why this spirit of rejection? They give three reasons. Um, The first reason, he simply had no charisma. There was nothing about him that would make you want to say, I want to watch, I want to watch that guy on, on Sunday morning preach. Or I want to follow that guy as he casts his great vision. There was nothing in his appearance that said that. You look at verse, verse 2. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Okay, so the imagery there is there's nothing impressive about what he is, this little root, or about where he comes from, dry ground. If that's the best that you can use to describe somebody, then that person isn't a very interesting person, right? A root out of dry ground. Okay, so his origin was just unimpressive. Who he was, it was unimpressive, but his appearance was also unappealing. He was not very handsome. Said he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. Unlike King Saul, who the people saw, he stood a head taller than everybody, and the people of Israel said, that's our guy, we'll follow him. This servant is the exact opposite. Nothing in his appearance is appealing. Nothing in his origin is impressive. There's no royalty and nothing else appealing about him. That's reason number one. He had no charisma. Rejected him. Second reason. He had no popular support. The right sponsors weren't sponsoring him. The right people weren't chatting about him to their friends. Nobody of importance had his back. Nobody. So they rejected him. No charisma. Why would I want to follow you? No popular support. Rejection. But lastly, and this is the one that is most, uh, most poignant to the message of this song, the servant appeared to be guilty. It wasn't just that he had no charisma. It wasn't just that there was no other reason to follow him. It actually appeared that he was being punished for his own sin. Look at verse 4, the second half. It says, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. In other words, we looked at him, and he's having a hard day. He's suffering. So obviously, he must have done something to deserve it. So why in the world would we not reject you? It's not just that you're not charismatic. It's not just that you're from nowhere. It's that you're a guilty criminal. You're getting what you deserve. And so when you look at it that way, why, why would the people of Israel have wanted to follow this mysterious servant of the Lord? And so it's no wonder that in verse 1 they say, who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord, the mighty strength of the Lord, been revealed? Can you imagine being an old Israelite encountering this mysterious servant of the Lord? And what you're saying to the people you're talking to is, How should we have known? How would we have known that this was the strength of God? How would we have known? 
Then we get into the second half of the psalm. So in this first half, they see the servant of the Lord, they reject him. But in the second half, something changes. Something changes in their understanding, in the way they view this servant. We don't exactly know what it is. The song doesn't tell us. But it goes from, we rejected him, to, wow, that's the Savior sent from God. And something happens in the middle, which we'll talk about. So in the first half, the servant is rejected. The second half, the Savior is recognized. But as he's being recognized, this is not celebration. This is deep remorse and sorrow that they did not recognize him at first. And as they recognize him, they come to understand him. They come to understand him. (laughs) There's two things about this servant. There's two things. First, is that he actually stood in solidarity and compassion with the people of Israel. He stood in solidarity with them. Verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrow. His identification with the people who rejected him was total. And his compassion for them was absolute. What he lacked In charisma, he made up for in compassion infinitely. Isaiah 53, verses 4, verse 4, is actually quoted in the Gospels. It's quoted in uh, at least one explicit quotation in Matthew when he says, uh, and this is actually interestingly enough, Jesus goes into a house and it's Peter's mother-in-law. He heals Peter's mother-in-law He goes back out the door, and there's hundreds of people coming to be healed. And Jesus goes around in perfect compassion, in powerful compassion, he starts to heal them. In Matthew, it says, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. This is powerful compassion. And then it says, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, that he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Wasn't charismatic. Didn't have a magnetic personality. He wasn't regal in his bearing, but he bore with us in our sorrows, in our trials, in a way that no human could. He actually healed us and brought upon himself our griefs, and our sorrows. So we stood in solidarity with them. But the song goes on. Isaiah goes on. The people of Israel are remembering now. He didn't just stand in solidarity with us. He didn't just heal us. He died for us. He died as a substitute in our place. Seekers, when you have a substitute at school, it's not your normal teacher, right? Somebody else comes in, stands in their place, and does their job. That's what this servant did. Here's what it said in verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So the servant died. And he died for sin. But he did not die for his own sin. They were wrong. They looked at him and they said, this suffering fool is dying for something that he did. Later on, they say, no, he's dying for something we did. He's dying for our sin in our place. It was a violent death that the servant underwent. I mean, just look at the words that are used to describe the experience of the servant. He was pierced. He was crushed. He was chastised. He was wounded. He was smitten. He was afflicted. It's like the people speaking can't pile on enough words to describe the horror and the terror of the servant's death. But even more astonishingly, all of this suffering was coming from God himself. In verse 4, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. In verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So there's something unexpected. He's not just suffering because he's guilty. He's suffering because we are guilty and and he is in our place. But the suffering that he is undergoing is the punishment from God that we deserve. The nails that went through his hand It was the punishment of God that I deserve, that you deserve, that we deserve as those who are transgressors of the law, who are sinners, who deserve nothing but wrath from God. So it's very clear the servant is suffering for our transgressions and our iniquities. But there's more to this portrait. There's more to this, frankly, horrifying portrait of the servant of the Lord. Because as we just sang, a great exchange is going on. Somebody that was standing here and somebody that was standing here have swapped places. And I'm happy to say that we are on the good end of that. Because here's what we receive. Verse 5. The second half. Upon him, the servant of the Lord, was the chastisement that brought us peace. In other words, wholeness and safety and fulfillment. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is a picture of wellness and comfort. The servant is suffering but we're in comfort. And rejecting the servant as foolish and weak and unattractive to seeing him as the one who brings peace and healing and comfort. It's a journey that many people have taken since that time from seeing Jesus as foolish 
from seeing Jesus as um, just a historical figure, a nobody, a reject, to seeing him as the savior of the world upon the cross, who shared with us in our sorrows perfect empathy, but beyond that died as one who bore our sins. And I'm also glad to say that Peter, big-hearted Peter, who rejected Jesus's assessment of what he came to do, to suffer and die. Peter went from rebuking the Lord for saying that to saying this. And I love to imagine Peter also sitting as maybe an old man, an old apostle, remembering when he was a young man, remembering probably with shame when he rebuked the Lord Jesus. And maybe he's, he's writing this. This comes from Peter's letter. This is what he says. I can just imagine an old Peter, maybe tears in his eyes. He says, beloved, the people he's writing to, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. From rebuking the Lord Jesus to saying that, Peter goes on to say, by his wounds, you have been healed. You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And so just like the people of Israel who reviled the servant of the Lord and then came to embrace him as their savior, Peter too went from rebuking the Lord to embracing him and then commending him to others as our substitute, the one who took our place bore the wrath of God and shared with us in our sorrows. This is a parable of all humanity. All humanity is divided by the cross. There's no middle ground. Either you take side one or side two. Side one, the cross is foolishness, it's weakness, and Jesus was just a stupid reject. Or side two, Jesus is the power of God for salvation. People of Israel faced the question. Peter faced that question. Every single Christian since that time has faced that question. And that is what we're here to remember tonight. I'm glad to know we're doing communion because communion is the time that we reflect on the fact that we are not the ones upon the cross. That we reflect upon the fact that it's not our back that has been whipped to the bone under the wrath of God, but that Jesus did it for us and that Jesus did it for all of us. So I want to pose that question to you, whether you are an unbeliever or a new believer or a young believer or an old believer or a veteran teacher of the scriptures. Have you faced up to what the cross is? Have you embraced it? Do you believe that to behold the suffering of Jesus is to see your own salvation?